Well, thank you, brethren. Always good to see that memorization of Scripture. And if you will, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter in the book of Zechariah, second to last book in the Old Testament. And he moves into a theme here in chapter 14, which is common throughout the 17 Old Testament prophetic books. In fact, you can bracket the 17 Old Testament books, beginning with Isaiah, going all the way to Malachi, they bracket with this theme of the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, Malachi chapter 4. He talks about the day of the Lord right at the beginning of Isaiah, defines it in more in chapter 13 of Isaiah, and almost all of the 17 prophetic books, the major prophets, the minor prophets, speak of the day of the Lord. So it's an important biblical theme. Behold, verse 1, Zechariah 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against what city? Not Miami, not Houston, Jerusalem. not New York, but Jerusalem. Right, brother? The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Sobering thoughts, especially when you think of the day in which we live. Now, prior to 1948, May 14, 1948, when Israel was reestablished in their land again by the United Nations Charter, they felt bad because of the Holocaust, the European nations, and there was no countries that wanted to take the Jewish people. America refused them. England refused them. Countries of Europe refused them. Theodore Herzl and others in what would call the Zionist movement were already beginning to bring waves of Jewish people. They called them Aliyahs. Each one was a wave of immigrants that came back to the land. They started that in the late 1800s, around 1880s. And those that left Europe during those times were spared the Holocaust, weren't they? See, the Lord was... Watching out for his people. We just need to be alert, don't we? To what, what he's saying and how he's guiding us. And so they went back into the land. Prior to 1948, many born-again Christians would read a passage like Zechariah 14 and say, Jerusalem, there's no interest in Jerusalem. The nation's not going to surround Jerusalem and besiege that city. That city was in ruins. Had been through waves of attacks of Gentile nations. Some, I think there were some 11 different waves of attacks from the time that the people of Israel left the Promised Land in 135 A.D. after the Bar Kokhba revolt, the second Jewish revolt. And so here they are. Now, let's fit this in its context before we move into the details of chapter 14. It's important always to do that when we study the Word of God. Chapter 14 is part of a burden or oracle that really begins in chapter 12. You notice chapter 12, verse 1. 
the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. And he goes on to elaborate. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 form a continuous prophecy that has various components to it. And then if you'll follow with your eyes back three more chapters to chapter 9, you'll see the same word, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and so forth. So chapter 9, 10, and 11 form a continuous oracle, prophecy, burden, the word of the Lord. And then chapters 12, 13, and 14. That's easy to remember, isn't it? Each of them are three chapters long. Two oracles given at the end of the book, chapters 9 to 14. Both of them dealing with the coming of our Lord. The emphasis in the first one, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, the emphasis, I said. I said it wasn't the only subject, because the second coming is mentioned in it as well. But the emphasis is on his first advent, his first coming. What we're celebrating here at this time of the year in the United States and other parts of the world. And we see that right in verse 9 of chapter 9. Behold your king. Behold your king. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is quoted directly, clearly, twice in the Gospels, referring to what event? The triumphal entry, when the beginning of Passion Week, the week that began with triumphal entry, ended with the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. And our Lord, the contrast, I wish I could take the time to show it to you. Because I want to focus on chapter 14. But the contrast here in the first eight verses of chapter 9. In the first eight verses of chapter 9, he's talking about the conquest of Alexander the Great. The leader of the Greco-Macedonian Empire. I just had my, my uh, dentist in Houston just changed. Joe will appreciate this. Uh, my dentist in Houston. And... and uh, the dentist, I, well, I, I, went, I played Little League with him. His, his dad was my coach. So, I mean, my previous dentist goes all the way back to when I was eight years old. But he's going to retire, Malcolm. He's going to retire. And so the, the lady that's taken, has bought the practice and taken over, I just said, I've got to put a crown on one of these things. And she's a Macedonian. And I said, I haven't, I haven't met anyone from Macedonia ever in my life, I don't think. Macedonia, you realize how important that country is? I asked her. And we began to talk. You know, Philip II of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. But anyway, his invasion is described here. And the great city of Tyre, the marketplace of the nations. If you've done any historical reading, you'll realize that Tyre was an island city in modern-day Lebanon, off the coast. It wasn't a natural island. It was a man-made island with a causeway. That was built by Alexander the Great. You see, Nebuchadnezzar spent, I've forgotten how many years. I think his, his conquest took, he spent some ten years trying to take Tyre. And he never could take it. They were able to resist him. And then the Persians came and tried and they couldn't do it. But Alexander came and they said, you won't do it either. And he built a causeway out to the city and took it within a few months. <laughs> He's compared to that leopard with wings, right? In the prophecy of Daniel, he covered all the way to the Indus River in India. 
within a matter of a few years. It's one of the great stories of history. It's worth, worth looking at if you have time. But he's contrasted here. He rode on a white horse. And he's called Alexander the Great. And in contrast, your king lowly riding on a donkey. The king of kings comes on a donkey. At least on his first coming. <laughs> he's going to be coming on second coming, isn't he? Revelation 19 tells us. But he came the first time in lowliness, and we're glad he did, because that enabled him to go to the cross and die for your sins and mine and enable us to be delivered from judgment to come. And so we see then that there's a purposeful contrast given here. Our Lord's coming. And there are other things important, things that are said about our Lord. The thing said in chapter 10, verse 4, staggering and worth meditation. But we get to chapter 11 and we find that the Lord says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter. The whole shepherd flock motif works all the way through this. The both, prophet, both prophecies, chapter 9 to 11 and chapters 12 through 14. And that fits with John chapter 10, doesn't it? What does our Lord say of himself with regard to shepherding? He says, I am the good shepherd. What does the writer of Hebrews say about him in Hebrews chapter 13? He's the great shepherd. And what does Peter say about him? He's the chief shepherd. So we see that. What does Psalm 23 say about him? He's my shepherd. I hope he's yours too. He's a great Lord. And I, I served the world's Lord for 26 years. I don't recommend him. You may be serving him today. I don't recommend him. <laughs> he's a cruel taskmaster. But my Lord Jesus, he's a gentle shepherd. He's going to lead you by the peaceful, still waters. He's going to anoint your head with oil, say. So he's feeding the flock, but he's feeding the flock for what? For slaughter. See, this is the first advent he's describing here. Brother brought up earlier this morning the whole issue of the sovereignty of God. You would think, and I'm sure many tried it, you would think, given the fact that this was prophesied 500 years before he came, that some of the people in the time frame of our Lord would have said, hey, let's try to obscure this. Let's try to, let's not fulfill it. I mean, look what it says about it. Let's keep it from happening. But you know what? It still happened. He knew the people he was feeding the Word of God to were going to, in the largest quantity of them, would reject him. And he kept doing it. What does that tell you and me about sharing the gospel? He knew the cross lay ahead of him. He knew that the majority of the people he was sharing the word of God throughout his three and a half year public ministry were going to reject him. The prophecy said it would happen. And God says to him, feed the flock anyway. He even talks about the poor of the flock. That would be the believers, the remnant. See, he was looking to feed it to the... He knew who the remnant were too, didn't he? We don't. And I dismissed verse 6, verse 8, I'm sorry. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also hoard me. Who were the three shepherds during the time frame? Of, who were the leaders of the, 
Jewish people during that time frame. The Bible in the New Testament is very clear about it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, the three that came and questioned him during Passion Week. And then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left each eat each other's flesh. That literally happened in the siege of the Romans, the Roman siege in 70 A.D. This literally happened. The Bible says that that would happen way back in Deuteronomy. And one of the curses and the curses and blessings of the law, when the people got away from God and got away from God, He would bring an enemy that would besiege them and women would eat their own children to survive during the famine. Yeah. Will that happen again? Very possibly because it happened in the Babylonian invasion. It happened in the Roman invasion in 70 A.D. And it will likely happen in the siege we're reading about in chapter 14. That's sobering, huh? See, we think we live in this world where everybody's so goody-goody and everything's working so well that we can establish utopia without God. You believe that? Most of the people you work with believe that. Our government believes that. They just signed a big treaty in Paris, right? They're going to even control the planet's weather. <laughs> That's one of the things God one of the things God is not letting man be in control of. <laughs> when I was working at Rice, we were designing these supercomputers or I was working with the group that was doing it. I wasn't designing them. And, and they, these nano computers and all of that. Because they needed to track a system that had multiple variables. That's very hard to do. You know, in, in equations, there's sometimes in mathematical equations and engineering, there may be three or four variables. But when you're talking about 140 variables, you need a computer to track that and do all the variation. That's what you need to do to predict weather. And they still can't get it. They didn't get it right this week here. And they probably didn't in Houston either. That Gulf Coast, it's tough with all the vapor that comes off that warm body of water. And then look what he says in verse 13. I wonder if Judas ever read this. Judas thought he was well adept with the Scriptures. Oh, beloved... Feast yourself on the whole counsel of God. Feast yourself on the whole counsel. I heard it said some time ago that we're not, we're not doing enough for the Word of God. We don't need teaching. We need action. Well, that's a little, little lack of wisdom in a statement like that because we need teaching all the time. And we need action. See? And besides which, that's a statement that's very hard to evaluate. Someone, if you wanted to say, well, you haven't traveled with me even in one day. You haven't traveled with me a week, a month, a year. How do you know I'm not acting? How do you know I'm not doing? Just because I'm not doing what you think I should be doing. Maybe I'm not doing, but I may be doing. And you too, right? The Bible says, immerse yourself. Feed on. We gave many opportunities this week for us to do that. To feed on the Word of God. That's what conforms you to the image of Christ. And any actions you do that's not conformed to the image of Christ is wood, hay, and stubble anyway. That stuff right here. And it's going to be assessed. What do you think that's going to happen to that when it's assessed by fire? It's going to vaporize, isn't it? What do you think your life will evaluate at the end? 
what will show up. See, that's what God says when we spend time in the Scripture. The Scripture reminds us of that. We can never have too much of the Word of God. And I'm glad you're training that to the children, the young children. Hiding the Word of God, studying the Word of God. You can never do too much of that. Don't ever think that way. That's wrong thinking. If Judas had been in the Word of God, he might still have spared his own soul. Here it is. It's quoted right here. Verse 13, The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. What price would you put on the Lord Jesus' life today? 30 pieces, 40 pieces, 100 pieces of silver? How valuable is the Lord Jesus to you? Because you can, you can answer that by what position He has in your life. Yeah. Hadule Adonai Kito, Kele Olam Hasto. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Do you believe that? That princely price they set on me. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And that literally happened, didn't it? Judas. And then he went out and hanged himself. They still talk about where the potter's field is there outside Jerusalem 2,000 years later. How would you like to be known for that? He couldn't even hang himself right. And Acts 1 says, Peter says when he's replacing him, he says he fell headlong when the branch broke or something broke. Fell down, that means he landed face first, head first. Probably broke his spinal cord and that's why it caused his entrails to burst out. That's what God thinks of someone who values his son with 30 pieces of silver. How much do you value Jesus Christ? Your life will show it. Your interest in the Word of God will show it. Your interest in the Lord's people will show it. See. And then verses 15 to 17. Whoa. What a prediction of Antichrist we have here. They wouldn't have the true shepherd. So God says, okay. See, there are consequences to rejection of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd, for indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care. These are opposites of what elders and those who are serving the Lord's people ought to be characterized by. Will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. In other words, he will exploit the sheep for his own empire. <laughs> And there are people doing that today, aren't there? In all of what we call Christendom. Using the sheep for their own interests. That's what the Antichrist will do. The false shepherd of Revelation 13. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. And he shall completely wither. Be totally blinded. Woo. They rejected the true shepherd. And so, remember the Lord Jesus said this in John 5.43. You wouldn't have the true shepherd, but there's one coming in his own name, and him you will receive. 
You won't receive me, he says, but there's one coming in his own name, not in the name of Jehovah, and him you will receive. That hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. Because everything else in this section has happened exactly like he said it. Happily, you come to chapter 12. Because then we see chapter 12 is prophesying the restoration of national Israel. They shall be born again in one day. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens. He stretches out the heavens. He's in control of the heavens. And He lays the foundation of the earth who forms the spirit of man within Him. So He talks about the heavens, the earth. He's in control. And He forms the spirit of man within Him, each individual. In other words, here is the omnipotent, sovereign God. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. And when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. You know how close we are to that event? (laughs) When the king of Rosh and Meshach is meeting with President Assad in Damascus, just a few miles north of Israel's border. <laughs> yeah. And it shall happen in that day. You notice the that day of verse 3? He will use that phrase that day all the way through this prophecy. And then you say, what day, what day, what day? You get to chapter 14, verse 1, and he says, the day of the Lord. That's the day. (laughs) That's the day we're talking about here. It's a literary technique to build up, to show interest, to, to drive us to continue to read. And I love how God does that. He says, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for how many peoples? All peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Wow. You mean this earth that many in the world think is moving towards utopia? That all those nations that are moving toward utopia without God are going to turn and gather against Jerusalem? If they read this prophecy, maybe they think that's not going to work out so well for them. But they can read this prophecy all they want. They're going to do this. Because God's word is fulfilled. He sees to it. That's awesome to me. The one who, and that's why he starts off, I believe, in verse 1, the one who stretches out the heavens. What I'm about to tell you, he says, is going to be so mind-boggling that your ears will itch. It will be something that will make your heart and ears tingle. A heavy stone. This is the idea you've seen some events where men try to pick up those heavy it's the idea this big heavy stone Jerusalem is going to be like that anybody that tries to move Jerusalem into the Mediterranean Sea how many years have we been hearing that in public discourse try about 35 or 40 since the 80s we've been hearing this so much so that we don't even listen to it anymore maybe don't connect it with Zechariah but we should listen to what they're saying <laughs> In the first coming of our Lord, the people had got so absorbed in the Roman Empire and just living day to day and making it through the week, forgot what the Word of God said and weren't ready for the visitation. And there are people in this world today that are not ready for His second visitation. See, He's telling us all these things in detail. 
And so he says in verse 7, the Lord, this is still chapter 12, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first. Salvation. And what he says here in verse 7 of chapter 12, we'll go all the way through the end of chapter 13. We see then that God says he will save. And he says in verse 10, I will pour on the house of David, on David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of judgment. Is that what it says? The spirit of grace and supplication. Did you get the spirit of grace when you trusted Christ? You were sure glad to get it. I was sure glad to get the spirit of grace and supplication and not judgment. Well, that's going to happen for the people of Israel. Does that offend you? I hope not. It offends a lot of people in Christendom. They don't want to accept this as true. They want to read into this. It's just a way of talking about the church and being born again. And he says, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. When will that happen? Well, the book of Revelation tells us that will happen at the end of the tribulation period. As the battle of Armageddon is totally staged. And Jerusalem is besieged. Armageddon, I think referring to the plain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo is right next to the plain of Megiddo, the plain of Jezreel. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he visited the Holy Land many years ago, he saw the plain of Jezreel, came into Haifa, the port of Haifa. He said, what a staging ground for a battlefield. (laughs) I don't think he knew the scripture. But he was a military genius, and he's right. But then they'll move south along the road patriarchs, the road that Jacob and Abraham came down to Jerusalem and circled the city and the Lord will let it go right up to that point. And the people that are left in the city and the people that have run and left when they saw the abomination of desolation and ran for Bozra and the area of the Dead Sea, the Lord will appear and they will see the one whom they pierced. And what will be their response? And that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, verse 11. The end of verse 10. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There will be a time of national mourning and repentance. Now, we deal, each time someone is born again in the church age, there is a period of mourning over sin and repentance. But this kind of mourning, this is the whole nation. They're recognizing what they did. It wasn't just them that crucified our Lord Jesus, though ultimately was it. It was every one of us. <laughs> We're all responsible. If you don't think so, talk to me or talk to one of us after. We'll show you from the Word of God. You're responsible too. Oh, yeah. Morning. What a sight. And here they are being besieged. And what are they doing? They're not building up armaments. They know they've got no chance against this foe. And they're in mourning. They see the, the, one, the only one who can deliver them. What a picture of what it means to be born again. Shall the nation be born in one day? Isaiah says. 
And the land, verse 12, shall mourn every family by itself. This is a deep grieving. This is what our Lord is talking about, by the way, in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they who mourn. He's not saying blessed are those who go to funerals and mourn over the loss of a life. He's saying blessed are those who mourn over sin in their own lives. For they shall be comforted with grace. With the spirit of grace and supplication when they turn to the Lord Jesus. The house of David by itself. And their wives, by the, they're in such deep mourning that even the wives go over here and the, and the men go over here because, you know, they, they feel maybe a little inhibited, embarrassed when they, but they're crying, they're mourning over their sin. Have you ever mourned over your sin like that? Oh, that we would. It's one of the real benefits of celebrating the Lord's Supper, isn't it? To remind ourselves how much He loves us and therefore we love Him. And in that day, chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A fountain for what, Lord? For sin and uncleanness. There's going to be a great cleansing how did it begin? It began with recognizing the one they pierced, the Lord. That led them to mourning and repentance, which led to cleansing. This is how it works still. And look what they needed to be cleansed from. He says, It shall be in that day, verse 2, that the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. That land is loaded with idols today. We were going to the airport one of the times to Ben-Gurion Airport there near Tel Aviv and a great banner on the side of one of the 12-story buildings, Science is our God. They have come back to the land, but they've come back in unbelief. That land is full of idolatry. And if you try to share the name of Jesus Christ there, you're likely to be arrested. Yeah. There are some places where you can get permits, but their numbers of those are dwindling. The names of the idols will be washed away and they shall no longer be remembered. I hope the names of the idols have been washed away from your life, your, your past life, I mean. Have the names of all the idols been washed away? I hope so. That's a process that the Bible calls sanctification. Dying to the old, right? Romans 6. And we participate in that, Romans 8.13, by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what he's talking about, dying to those idols. And you say, yeah, I didn't have any statues in my house or in the backyard. That's not the only kind of idols there are, though, right? Idols can be people. Idols can be your parents or your children or your friends or your career or education. How many people I know have made education a an idol, and they bow at that idol, and everything takes second place to that, including serving the Lord. Yeah. All kinds of idols. Anything that goes ahead of the Lord is an idol. Amen? So examine your hearts, beloved. We need to do that continuously. I'm still learning some new ones from my life after walking with the Lord for years because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We mask them. We hide them. They're in that whole closet that Brother Boyd Munger wrote about in 1958. You know, the 
my heart, Christ's home, and, there, and he let the Lord have every room in his house. He said, but you can't have that whole closet. I only have the key to that closet. Finally, he had to hand over the key. F.B. Meyer said that there was a time in his life he was a great servant of the Lord and preacher of the Word, but he felt like there wasn't power in his preaching at a certain point and stage in his ministry. And he realized there was one last key he hadn't given the Lord. Now, he was embarrassed to admit that. He hadn't seen it. The Holy Spirit showed it to him. By the way, how does, that, how does the Holy Spirit do that? By your time in the Word? You don't spend time in the Word? No wonder you don't know what your idols are in your heart. Ezekiel talks about they set up that idol in their heart. Right? Right there in the temple. And your heart is part of the temple of your body. Temple of the Holy Spirit, see. They set that idol up right there. <laughs> Ezekiel says. F.B. Meyer says, I humbly humbled myself and, and gave him that last key. And then the blessing began to flow in his ministry and went on to the rest of his life. Have you given him the last key? Mm, I hope so. And I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. You see, there were false teachers and false prophets then, and there still are. All kinds of them. But not just in Israel. In this land too. You listening to them? All kinds of voices out there you can listen to. We thought it was bad growing up in the 70s and 80s, right, Brother Mal? But now you're in the information age. You don't even need to leave your house. You can access all kinds of voices on your device. And you're probably doing it out of curiosity. Curiosity is one of the things of our old nature that will lead us into all kinds of problems. Oh, I wished I could communicate that to teenagers. I wished I knew it as a teenager. But nobody taught me that. Teach your young people that. And it shall come to pass that anyone still prophesies that his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you've spoken lies in the name of the Lord and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. You see, this is the kind of cleansing we're talking about. They're now moving into the kingdom period and they're serious about sin. This was part of the law, but they, we don't read of any indications in the Old Testament where they did this, do we? Hezekiah didn't do it with Manasseh. And so, one will say, well, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer, and a man taught, don't, don't accuse me of being a prophet, he says. He, he doesn't want that. And those great verses, wow, that, look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Oh, I haven't even got to chapter 14 yet. Look at what God says. God the Father says about His Son, Awake, O sword, against my Shepherd against the man who is my companion, my equal. God says, awake, sword. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. God says, I know this is the way for salvation to occur, to bless people. So he says, awake, sword, and slay my son against my companion. And of course, the sheep were scattered we read about that in the Gospels in the book of Acts. And it shall come to pass in all the land, verse 8, look at this statement, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Sixty-seven percent. Now some believe that this is going to be during the seven-year tribulation period and be primarily confined to that, which could be true, or it could be from the time the sheep were scattered in 70 A.D. all the way and include the seven-year tribulation period. 
Either way, 67% is a lot of people when you figure that there are, what, 14 million Jewish people in the world today? 16 million? 67% of that? You can do the math. That's too many to bury. But I think the emphasis there is on the tribulation period. And one-third shall be left in it. See, Israel is paying a big price for what they did. Some people say they, they just can't forgive the Jewish people. Call them Christ killers and all that. I think that's very wrong. That's putting elevating ourselves above a place that we don't belong. We're not any better. I will bring the one-third through the fire of the tribulation period. We'll refine them as silver, test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. That's what we've seen in chapter 12 and 13. And I will answer them and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord Jehovah is my Elohim as a nation. I can't wait for that day. How about you? You'd rather be concerned about the stock market? You'd rather be concerned about whether the dolphins make it to the playoffs. (laughs) Not saying you have to ignore those things. I'm talking about priorities, though. The priority is what God is doing in this world. Do you want to be a part of it? I do. Not just now, but into eternity. And that brings us to chapter 4. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And initially they will suffer. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravaged. Half of the city shall go into captivity. The remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. You remember when we combined these prophecies and this word study comes in. You've got to combine this with Daniel and, and with Isaiah and with Ezekiel and with the book of Revelation. We begin to see that Antichrist sets up his dominion in Jerusalem, makes it his city. The abomination of desolation takes place. Many believe that Antichrist himself will walk into the Holy of Holies in the tribulation temple and do some lewd act of defiance against God. And God will permit that even and allow him to reign from Jerusalem for three and a half years. The nations of the earth will be tired and fed up with that. They're going to come against Jerusalem. The Lord shall go forth, verse 3, and fight against those nations. He fights in the day of battle. Look out. Here he comes. (laughs) The Lord himself, the only one who can deliver him. And in that day, his feet will stand on what mountain? Mount Everest? One of the big mountains in the Rockies in Colorado? No, specific mountain. Mount Olivet. Those feet, those wonderful, beautiful feet, the feet that the woman in Luke chapter 7 washed with her tears and white with her hair, the feet that were anointed by Mary of Bethany there with oil, the feet that were pierced for your sins and mine, they will stand on the Mount of Olives just to the east. I've stood there. That It's a long area. I'm not saying I was standing where he will land, but I'm looking at the Mount of Olives and, and, and Jerusalem's down there a little lower in elevation. So you look right down on the Temple Mount. You see everything. And his feet stand there. Where was the mountain where he ascended in Acts chapter 1? Thank you. The Mount of Olives. His feet left the Mount of Olives, went to the clouds. The disciples watched. It's coming back to the same place. A literal place on planet Earth 
where he will come back. And when that happens, it faces Jerusalem on the east. That's correct. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. That is a, that is a 90 degree or say 180 degree topographical change in the surface of the earth. The valley next to the Mount of Olives runs north-south. It's called the Great Rift Valley. It includes the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. It goes all the way down into Africa. It goes all the way down where Mount Kilimanjaro is. The Great Rift Valley, it's one of the, the deepest places and cuts in the earth's continental crust. And now it's going to be 90 degrees different. East-west. Has that happened already? Can you explain that with allegorization as something that happened in the church age? Is that what you want to do with Scripture? Just allegorize it? No. Spiritualize it and read these things away? Yet, 70% of the books on prophecy in the bookstores, so-called Christian bookstores of our day, will allegorize and spiritualize this away and not take this as literal. And then half of the mountain shall move. I love this. The Holy Spirit wants to make sure we understand what he's talking about. So he describes it the same event in a different way. He says half of the mountain shall move toward the the north and the other toward the south. Well, if it moves toward the north and toward the south, what direction is the valley running then? Thank you. He's trying to help us. But not only that, then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall be reached unto Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. That's what Revelation 19 says. And it shall come to pass in that day that there shall be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. So not only are there topographical changes, there are changes to the sun and the moon and the stars. God can do that, can He? What did chapter 12, verse 1 say? He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. See? And in that day there shall be living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, in both summer and winter. Has that happened yet? Can you take me over there to the land and show me where that's happening? It's the same thing Ezekiel talks about in his great prophecies in chapters 40 to 48 with the Jerusalem that will follow the battle of Armageddon and go into the kingdom. Oh yeah, it's so consistent. And the Lord shall be, verse 9, the Lord shall be, say it with me, the Lord shall be king over how much of the earth? All of it. Does he deserve that? Yes. He deserves it because he's the creator and he deserves it because he's the redeemer. He built it. He made it. He sustains it. And he bought it with his own blood. I love it. And I don't mind calling him King Jesus. I appreciate some of our young people have been daring enough to do that, you know, in some of the Spiritual songs that we enjoy. King, they love to sing worship. Do you like to? I know Matt does because I've been with him when he leads us in singing like that. Oh yeah, King Jesus. And in that day, the Lord is one, His name one. Beloved, can I go just a few more minutes to finish out the chapter? I know I've gone over, but all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon. Wow. So we're saying that the land is not a plain. I mean, 
It is, it is mountainous and hill country. All that's going to change. I believe the continents are going to change. When he says there'll be no more sea, that seems to indicate to me that it'll be all one continent. Perhaps, again, I believe that the planet may have been one continent before the flood and that the continents were divided up. You can see how they fit together. You don't have to be a five-year-old to put that puzzle together. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place. It's going to be the highest mountain. It isn't. Mount Olivet is higher than Jerusalem currently. That's going to change. Can you imagine in the temple up there at the... That's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. And, and he talks about the various gates and the people. Verse 11, it shall dwell and no longer shall, shall there be utter destruction. Isaiah chapter 2 says that in the day of the Lord that the weapons shall be formed into farm implements, right? They shall take their plowshares and their swords and, and get rid of because there shall be no more war, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited for the first time in 2,000 years. And this shall be the plague. Now listen, this is kind of gruesome. <laughs> but this is what happens to those who make siege against Jerusalem and seek to destroy the people. Beloved, all the nations of the earth are against them right now. Do you know that? Even our government is no longer standing with them. When Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to Congress back in March, I was in Georgia at the time, and and brother pulled it up on the internet because I was it was during the daytime and I was working, wasn't able to. And we watched that speech and listened to all hour and five minutes of it. And I said to the brother and later to the assembly, can you imagine what a historical moment this is when the leader of the free world is not the President of the United States but the Prime Minister of Israel? <laughs> Listen to his speech. He speaks more like the leader of the free world than any of the representatives of the Western world. That's historical. Don't miss it. This shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. He's not going to wait for cancer that lasts over a year and a half or something. And No, no, this is going to happen right then. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Spielberg tried to show this in one of the movies he did with Indiana Jones and so forth, but nothing like what this is going to be. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Has this ever happened before in Jewish history? Actually, it has, right? In Second Chronicles chapter 20 under Jehoshaphat, when they went down to the valley of Barakah, remember? And the Lord turned them. It happened in the judges as well when Gideon was fighting the the armies lined up and something happens. They go berserk in their head. You hit me or you spit on me. Why am I going to? And then the other one and they all turn against. God can do that. That's your father and your savior advocate. Don't forget. Don't forget to pray when you're in danger. That's who wants to protect you. That's better than any government can. <laughs> 
And it shall come to pass in that day a great panic from the Lord will be among them, and they'll seize each other's hands and, and destroy them. Judah also will fight, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, apparel, and great abundance. It's going to be a second exodus, a second Egyptian exodus. See, the Egyptians, remember, they plundered the Egyptians when they left under the first exodus. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So their plague shall be. People have said over the years they, with the technology, they say, well, there, there it proves it's got to be allegorical. You've got to spiritualize that. Nobody's going to fight on cavalry and horses and mules and donkeys anymore. Oh, no. Well, do you read about the earthquakes? Some seven of them in the book of Revelation. What do you think happens to refineries and pipelines when earthquakes happen? <laughs> no more oil. And you can't travel by car very easily when the roads are like this. You're going to wish you had a horse. And then lastly, verses 16 to 21. We've seen his feet, their flight. The waters flow and Judah will fight. And then we see the king will be worshipped. And it shall come to pass, verse 16, that everyone which is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year and worship the king the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wow. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Kingdom, the Feast of the Passover, a link primarily to the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost to the church age, right? Acts chapter 2. The Feast of Tabernacles is the feast associated with the Millennial Kingdom. Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, the final harvest, the bringing in of, yeah, you and I, Gentiles, are going to be required by the Lord Jesus. You remember Isaiah chapter 2 says, In the day of the Lord, the law shall go forth from Jerusalem as the waters cover the sea and the Word of God will be taught. Who's going to be teaching the Word of God? The church, His court, that will be reigning with Him over the earth. And the Word of God will be enforced. And they will have to go celebrate the feast of... What if they say, well, I'm not going to go celebrate. I'm going to stay home. And it shall be that whichever the families that God knew, you're going to ask that, see? And it shall be whichever the families there do not come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them, there shall be no rain. Apparently, we're going to go back to an agrarian economy. There's no rain, guess what? No food. No food, guess what? You die. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which which the Lord strikes the nations. Do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, you get the plague too. Well, they'll be going. <laughs> going up to that changed land, the mountain, of this, the mountain of the Lord, as he tells us there in Zechariah chapter 12. Benjamin Mazar named his commentary on archaeology in the Holy Land, the mountain of the Lord. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. We'll go up and celebrate. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the fast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles? Might be good to learn that now. <laughs> and in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on even the bells of the horses. The horses, the bells, you know, the part. Now, Zechariah was a priest. He's saying that the holiness to the Lord, that goes on the blade of the mitre of the high priest. He said, yeah, well, even the horses are going to have it. Because everyone's going to be separated to the Lord. Holiness means separation unto God. 
Why not separate unto him now? Now what he's talking about here is during the millennial kingdom. So you see the day the Lord does include the millennial kingdom. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem, Judah, shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Even the pots and pans. You sisters, do you think about that when you're making the pot roast on Sunday afternoon? That the, the pots and the pans, this, I'm doing this separated to the Lord. It will change everything. That's how we're to think now. You and I are set apart for the Lord. That's what sanctification means. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day they shall be no longer Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. What a way to end, huh? Why is he talking about that? Does that recall something in Jewish history? Remember the book of Nehemiah? Chapter 13, the last book of that book. Last chapter of that book. And you remember, Nehemiah, they had cleansed the land. They got a new start, a new opportunity. The walls have been built. They've reestablished the temple, the sacrifices, the people. And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, is given a room right there in the temple. An unbeliever who hates God, hates the sacrifices, hates the Word of God, is given a place inside the temple. Nehemiah has to get in there and cleanse it, get all his stuff out of here. What a picture. Have you got anything like that in your temple? The temple of your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul says, get rid of it too. Get Tobias stuff out of your temple and be set apart for God. Holy. That's what He saved us for. And we can worship the King. I love this. This is so encouraging. The Lord Jesus said, to the disciples in Matthew 19, 28, in the regeneration. The word regeneration is used only twice in the New Testament. In Titus 3, 5, it refers to being born again. The word literally means palingenesia. It means born again. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus is talking about the millennial kingdom in Matthew 19, 28. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on His glorious throne. He said, you shall be judges, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You twelve. Yeah. He's got a function and role for you, too, and me. Are you preparing for it? You can be. Begins by trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Recognizing you can't save yourself. And then having done that, living for Him as a disciple a learner, a grower, one who immerses themselves in the Word of God, not ashamed of the Word of God, not ashamed of the truth of God, not ashamed of the Son of God, enjoys fellowshipping with His people, serving Him, and gradually giving over everything you are to Him. Because He's worthy. I'll close with this. Back in the days of Moravian missionaries, the Moravians, Peter Bowler and those in Germany in that time area, Count Zinzendorf and them, they, were, they had a zeal for the Lord. They were the first missionaries that, came, that went out of Europe. And two young men, 21 years of age, something like that, heard about an island in the Atlantic where uh, the landowner, the island owner, 
only allowed slaves to live. Everybody on the, on the island was slaves except him and his family. He wouldn't allow any missionaries to come there because he didn't want the slaves to hear the truth. And he kept them oppressed. The two young men heard about it. They said, we want to go there as missionaries. We know we can't go as missionaries. So they sold themselves into slavery. And they used the money that they got from selling themselves into slavery to buy the ship ticket. They only needed a one-way ticket. And as they were leaving the harbor in Hamburg, Germany, saying goodbye to all their friends and those in the family of God, they knew they'd never see them again. As they left out of the port, they're standing on the bow and everybody's waving goodbye. And they said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. Yeah. The cry of Moravian mission. And it continued that way. Is the lamb worthy of his sufferings? I hope we all agree on that. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the great truths you've given us in your word. Help us to let them sink in. That's what meditation means, to let them sink into our hearts, rehearse them over and over again in our minds. Help us maybe to do that this afternoon or this week. Be with us as we part. Let each one have a good afternoon and we'll come back looking to you to give us a great time of celebration with the children the Christmas time. Thank you for the Christmas program and thank you for those that are working to organize that. Give them patience with the children. Thank you for your love, O Lord. We love you because you first loved us. We ask these things in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.